0: Okay, so we had a fun little introduction last week to this lesson. There wasn't a lot of time, so I only did the introduction. And since this covers kind of some tough stuff, I thought I'd give you a fun way to take notes. Fun? Notes? Huh? Um, Yes, please, please distribute the fun way. Oh, Captain O'Fun, David Danley. It's a crossword puzzle, and to fill it out, you have to listen well. And somebody asked if I brought prizes. Okay, well, if learning the stuff isn't enough, then how about bragging rights? You have bragging rights if you do better than the person next to you or somewhere in here. We also have clipboards and pens, and so... If you want to raise your hand, if you want a clipboard or a pen, there we go. David now has a team. Yes. And I'll start giving a wee recap in case somebody wasn't here last week. Um, I didn't want that up. We're going to start with the video. And I'm not ready for that either. Sorry. That probably made no sense, and there's a reason for that. Last week, we started talking about how God wants us living our lives not stagnant, but moving in a forward direction, making progress how the word God is actually a verb. It indicates movement. And so being made in his image, we also should have forward movement. Anybody remember any of that? That sound familiar? Or did I pull up the wrong notes? (laughs) Sounds good. And how we can feel like I have no more capacity to take anything else on, and that's natural. But we're more than natural. The human spirit was designed to overcome hardship. That's on the puzzle. I'm not going to tell you the rest of them. The human spirit is designed to overcome hardship because we experience joy in that kind of achievement. And if you were here, you saw a video about a little boy who was born with a whole lot of physical challenges, has had tons of surgeries, including one to remove his legs below the knee, and how, against all odds, he became known as an athlete and a motivational speaker by the age of eight. He's now about 11. And we pointed out how God likes to do really unlikely things with unlikely suspects. The last thing you would expect from this kid is to be an athlete and to be kind of a picture of joy and thriving And yet, that's what he's done. And um, his name was Cody. And as I was looking on YouTube for different interviews with him and his parents and stuff, trying to learn his story, I ran across another Cody. This is an adult Cody. And I thought it'd be good to show you his video, because when we talk about doing something for God, we tend to think, I couldn't possibly, I'm not, you know, Billy Graham, I'm not Mother Teresa I don't pray for people and, you know, new ears grow and new arms grow. and That doesn't happen. And that's not what we're talking about when we talk about doing something for God. I want you to watch this video. And I think my ear is Something's making a tapping noise. It's God knocking. Come on in, Lord. Take over. Is that better? Um, His name was Cody. And as I was looking on YouTube for different interviews with him and his parents and stuff, trying to learn his story, I ran across another Cody. This is an adult Cody. And I thought it'd be good to show you his video because when we talk about doing something for God, we tend to think, I couldn't possibly. I'm not, you know, Billy Graham. I'm not Mother Teresa. I don't pray for people and, you know, new ears grow and new arms grow and, it. That doesn't happen, and that's not what we're talking about when we talk about doing something for God. I want you to watch this video, and I think my ear is making that noise. Something's making a tapping noise. It's God knocking. Come on in, Lord, take over. Is that better? Yes? I think so. Okay. Sorry about that. Watch this um, interview with this guy, Cody, and notice the moment that there was transformation in his life and who it was that was involved in that and what they did. It wasn't some big power encounter. It was not a way, but go ahead with the video one, please. The beginning would be good.
1: People come to live when they've lost everything and everyone.
0: Can you go back to begin?
1: Thanks. This is an old park in downtown Las Vegas. It's a place where people come to live when they've lost everything and everyone. But a few years ago, this became a place where one man experienced the uncensored grace of God. Meet Cody at the age of thirteen, he left home to become part of a hippie community in Haight Ashbury. He did drugs, he sold drugs and all total spent about five years in various prisons and jails. Good of job and a real talent for bass fishing, he was on his way to becoming a millionaire and a crack addict.
2: I worked in nursing most of my life. I worked for rich and famous people so that opened the doors to a lot of money, a lot of prestige and all of that stuff. Uh, then I got into pro bass fishing and, and was fairly successful there. At the time that I started smoking I had over six hundred thousand dollars in the bank. I had a brand new bass boat, Harley, everything, and I slowly but surely smoked it all away, all the way down to filling a backpack, leaving my home, and being on the street.
1: And that's when Cody arrived here. He slept in a field. He ate out of trash cans, and he spent every single dollar he was given on crack.
2: This picture here. Um, was taken two months before I went to church. I was 135 pounds. Uh, That is an arrest picture. That's the picture they actually take of you when you go to jail. This was taken three months before the other picture. At this part in my life, if I thought you had money in your pocket, I would flat kill you. That's how much hatred I had in my heart. I mean I I didn't care if you had something that I wanted I'm gonna get it
1: and if I saw you like this I would give it to you yeah (laughs) (laughs) living in this park for eight months Cody saw the worst things this world has to offer
2: I saw people murdered out here I saw rapes out here I saw violence like you've never seen violence and it didn't seem to me that any so of course when I was homeless God was really far from me then but we used to have people come out here and pull up to the gate and they would have sandwiches and they'd have drinks for us. And they didn't care how high we were, or how whatever we were. And they showed us love. And I think that, that was the first key to me to kind of start looking at God.
1: The homeless ministry didn't just offer him sandwiches, but they offered Cody a hot shower, new clothes. but It was all with one condition. He had to come to church. And that's where a simple act of love changed his life
2: I walked up in the room where we meet and this lady named Michelle said good morning Cody how are you okay and then she looked at me and she says you need a hug and I said honey you don't want to touch me because I haven't had a shower in three months I mean I smelled I I couldn't stand myself I mean it was horrible that woman says you don't smell and she walked up and she looked in my eyes and she gave me a big hug and told me that Jesus loved me in that split second I was somebody okay I was somebody you know she even remembered my name that was the the point where I saw God is alive in this world
1: a few weeks later in the field where he slept Cody got on his knees and just started talking to God
2: I remember the words I said I said God you know what I have driven my car my whole life and I've got into nothing but wrecks I've been addicted, I've had everything, I've lost everything, now, I want you to drive my car." From that moment on, supernatural stuff started happening in my life. I was the unhappiest homeless guy out here. I had not smiled in a year. All of a sudden, people would come up and they're like, you must have got some good drugs, man, because you are sure in a good mood, and I'm like, I found Jesus.
1: Cody started coming to church every Sunday, he was reading his Bible, volunteering. People at the church even gave him a car and a job and a place to live. Over time, God gave him back everything that he had lost. But he also gave him a new perspective.
2: I have way more, way more than I ever had. Way more. That hole in my heart that I tried to fill with sex, with drugs, with rock and roll, with things that I could go out and buy is now filled okay and i can honestly say that no matter whatever happens to me no matter what i know that god's in control and god is going to take care of me
1: these days cody has a home he has a wife a family even his own business he's always quick to just give god credit for everything he has thankful for the blessings for the struggles but most of all he's just thankful for god's amazing grace
2: I'm like almost crying because God picked me up out of the dirt and put me where I am today. I mean, it's it's incredible. What a wonderful God we serve. And all we have to do is be available. That's it. You know? So
0: what was the moment that turned things around? The hug? Okay. And does it take some kind of rock star to do what that lady did? Yeah, it started with the sandwiches, but then the real um, when he said he saw God was, um, "You guys need to wake up. How about this? Okay, repeat after me just so you can show you can do it. You don't smell. See, you can all do it. I'd have you, I'd have you demonstrate that you can hug, but I've already watched you, and I know you can hug. And that's all. That's really all she did. And the big challenge there um, is getting over our natural reluctance to other people. I mean, there's people we like, but there's people that stink, either physically or their attitude stinks or their choices stink, right? And it, they're, they're kind of prickly, like porcupines, and we don't want to get too close. And so getting to that point of seeing people through God's eyes and nose and saying, you don't smell, you know, um, that's, that's the challenge. Um, let's go ahead and start the PowerPoint. It starts with that poem, which is a child's perspective on people. We have the nicest garbage man. He empties out our garbage can. He's just as nice as he can be. He always stops and talks to me. My mother doesn't like his smell, but mother doesn't know him well. And I want you to remember that when when you feel like maybe God wants you to talk to somebody or he's put you in the same environment with somebody who's really obnoxious is getting to that point of saying, I think he smells, but that's because I don't know him well. Let me try to get to know him or her and give him a chance. That makes a big difference once you start getting to know them. And you find out they're so grouchy in the morning because they take care of their mom with Alzheimer's all night and they don't get any sleep. That puts a different perspective on things and gives you an idea about how to address the issues. That's, that's not a number yet. Not that I'm going to tell you, because I want you listening. Uh, I mentioned last week Philippians 3.14, where Paul said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And how that word, press towards the mark, is giving you a word picture of Reaching, like a runner reaching towards the finish line. We need to have a goal and be reaching towards it. And I mentioned this resources book, Sparkling Gems from the Greek. It's a book. I got it on CD-ROM. And how this guy really explains well what a lot of these um, very visual words mean. And so today you'll hear some more of what he explains. But the, the important thing... About that video is getting in touch with the fact that we don't live isolated lives. We're gears. All of us are gears that are connected to other gears. And in order for the machine of life to work, they all have to move forward, right? If even one of those gears gets stuck, I don't care if it's a little bitty gear or the great big important looking gear, everything stops. I'm no engineer, but I, I think I know that much. And we don't recognize that how many people we are connected to, either directly or through a couple of other gears. I just got a request on Facebook this week from a guy wanting to be my friend, a guy named Carlos, and I thought, well, yeah, first name and last name match. That's my cousin Carlos, but I'm already friends with him. Why would he be sending me another friend request? And then I read the little message, he's my other cousin Carlos that I've never met, because about the time he was born... I was probably about 10. My mom and his dad, they were brother and sister, had a falling out and didn't speak for 30 years. So I didn't even I don't I didn't even remember that his name was Carlos because he was a baby at about that time. I remember his older brother and sister, but not him. And you think, okay, yeah, big deal, great, one more cousin. I've got a few. But here's the issue. Here's this person that I didn't even know about. Now I can connect with him. What if tomorrow I find out I need a kidney transplant, or he finds out he needs a kidney transplant, and we're each other's best match. I've known cousins that that happened with. And so here I've been going through my life, oblivious to the fact that he even exists, maybe not taking care of my kidney so well, and his life could depend on it. See, I mean, we just don't know what connections we're going to have. So we will continue our lesson on living life fully forward, but let's pray. Lord, I ask for every distracting memory or spirit or thing to be silenced now in Jesus' name. For it to be your voice that people hear, and it be the things that you highlight that really stand out to them. And Lord, I ask that that you would lead me in which parts of this to cut and which parts of this to emphasize. We thank you, Lord, for bringing us together. And we ask, Lord, that it would be you that um, provokes our forward movement in every area of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to know which is the most important gear, it's the first one, the one that gets everything going, and that was God. And I think that's important because we tend to think, oh, the pastor's the most important, or this, or that. And we're all equally important except for God. who put it in motion. Uh, One of the things I mentioned, we're going to talk about the things that keep us from living life going forward. And one of the ones I mentioned was the lack of desire. And we talked about how in the Bible, desire is mentioned as a good thing. When it's desire to do the work of God, that's a good thing. And the word means almost um, an obsession, very close to that. Being almost single-mindedly obsessed, like the song says, you're my all with God and his kingdom and what he's doing next. And how difficult it is for leaders when somebody doesn't have that desire because you're trying to encourage them, push them, provoke them, and they're just kind of sitting there. And then when they finally get up a little bit, the first time there's a little hardship, I'm out of here. And I think we're all born with that desire. If we're wired this way to overcome hardships, to keep growing, then God puts that in us. But I think something kills it, something... Uh, makes us apathetic and lazy. And I want to tell you about a really interesting couple. Here's a picture of them early in the 20th century. That's Will and Ariel Durant. They got married when she was just 15. He was a few years older. They stayed married for 68 years, which in itself I think is an awesome accomplishment. But besides being married, they also worked together. They worked together, (laughs) they worked together for 50 years on one project. Um, Oh, they died two weeks apart, forgot to say that. Married 68 years, died two weeks apart. And this was their 50 year project the story of civilization. History, for the everyday person, over a thousand years of history, in 11 books, it's the only series I've ever insisted on buying. To show you how big they are, here's one of the books. This is not the biggest book; it's the one at the right, right at the end. It's um, which one is it? The Age of Napoleon, the last one they wrote. They went that far. So this isn't the biggest one, and there's 11 of them. And something that's really interesting to me, just kind of a side note. You see this little lavender one? I don't know why they picked that color. All the ones before say Will Durant. Starting with this one, it starts saying Will and Ariel Durant. She worked on all of them. But they wouldn't put a woman's name on the cover of a book. they just put the husband's name on the cover of the book. Inside the book, you find Will and Ariel Durant. But until somewhere between... 47 and 61, they decided, I guess it's okay to put the woman's name on the cover, too. Um, A.D. yes, After the printing press. And so if you, if you read history and you see a lot of men's names, don't think that women had nothing to do with it. That's just my little aside. But the reason I bring them up is because after having studied all of this, And they went through all the books again to make sure they were right. They noticed that there were certain patterns in the rise and fall of different civilizations, civilization being a people group. And so that's the part I want to know. And they wrote this little tiny book, The Lessons of History, telling you about those patterns. And just in a quick recap, here's what happens. You have a group of people who are kind of down and out, They're somebody else's servants or slaves. They do the stuff that the owners don't want to do, like picking the crops and cleaning the bathroom and working the factory. Think about, in our day, who does that? And their life is hard. They probably lose a lot of children and don't live very long. And so they learn to rely on their religion, whether it's Christian or something else. Whatever their religion is, they rely on that for some sort of hope that there's a point to all this suffering. And most religions have a moral code. This is wrong, this is right, and they really stick to that moral code. And so they work hard, they live clean lives, they save their money so that someday they can buy stuff instead of being somebody's property. It might take several decades, several different generations, but eventually they get to that place where they can buy a little piece of land and start growing apples, not just picking them, that kind of thing. And so they grow, they get wealthier, and they get to the point where they can hire or enslave other people to do their dirty work. And so they find some other little civilization to enslave or employ. And now they have a more comfy life. And so who needs God, right? Whatever their religion was, they start backing off of that and really paying attention to things like education and entertainment, sports, the arts, not so much the religion stuff. And I'll read you a little bit from the book. As education spreads, theologies lose credence and receive an external conformity without influence upon conduct or hope. We go through the motions, but we don't necessarily have hope and we're not necessarily doing it for the right reason. Life and ideas become increasingly secular, ignoring supernatural explanations and fears. Caught in the relaxing interval between one moral code and the next, an unmoored generation surrenders itself to luxury, corruption, and a restless disorder of family and morals in all but a remnant, a few people clinging desperately to old ways. Few souls feel any longer that it is, quote, beautiful and honorable to die for one's country. A failure of leadership may allow a state to weaken itself with internal strife. Sound familiar to anybody? Does our Congress spend time on anything much other than internal strife? At the end of the process, a decisive defeat in war may bring a final blow, or barbarian invasion from without may combine with barbarism welling up from within to bring the civilization to a close. Those people that they enslaved have been getting stronger, living by their moral code, saving their money, and are now in a position to take over. And the ones that have be- had become the world power or what have you, that civilization starts dying out. It might just be a footnote in history. This is what they saw over and over and over again. And they write, is this a depressing picture? Not quite. It's like, hmm, really? Um, it sounds depressing to me. So what would make it less depressing? And they talk about how um, really we can still try to make a difference in life and say, let it be our pride that we ourselves may put meaning into our lives and sometimes a significance that transcends death. And I think, you know, they, they didn't think they were great superstars. They recognized that Just like civilization, somebody else would write another history of the world that would be even better and more accurate. It's just the nature of things. But while I think they're a great example of forward progress in their career, they didn't make forward progress upward in their relationship with God. In fact, Will had started off in seminary and dropped out of seminary to be pursuing history, which I don't necessarily think was a bad thing if he wasn't called to that kind of work. But he ended up walking away from God altogether, becoming an agnostic. Not an atheist saying there is no God, but an agnostic saying, eh, maybe, maybe not. Who knows? We probably can't know. And so he developed a philosophy that was about, I have to find significance in my life. And we'll talk about in a minute what happens when I'm trying to have my own vision and follow my own vision instead of whatever God created me for. Somebody else who's a favorite author of mine, but I don't have all his works, hint, hint, <coughs> anybody taking notes on Giftless, um, C.S. Lewis, and he wrote about pain and struggle and how that transforms us in a good way. And if you've been around for the last couple of years, you've probably heard me say this once before, but um, I want to read you a little bit out of Mere Christianity, where he tells us, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he's building up a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. And I purposefully am showing you a picture where you can't see the whole house. I mean, do you have any idea what that whole house looks like? No. And that's because whatever God is building out of me, I don't believe that I will know what that looks like until I'm on the other side, until I have reached that part of eternity. Because what he's building isn't just something for here on earth. And yes, I believe he wants me to have an effect here on earth. But he has plans for me for eternity. And until I get there, I really don't know, I don't think I know whether it's going to be a beach house or a hospital or a school you know whatever he's building out of me I don't think I'll fully know but my job is to try to get an idea of the next step in his plan and carry that out and so if he says add a room I need to add a room now if I go through life just living for myself and I think um, this is interesting the group we have cuz it looks like a graduate class you know if if you go to a freshman class in college you have like 100 120 students cuz everybody has to take that class and as you get further and further along, the classes get smaller and smaller. So this is kind of cool. This is kind of graduate subjects. Um, if I'm living just for myself, which is frankly what most of us do, honestly. I mean, just growing up in this culture, that's, that's how we're programmed. Um, here's the result. This is from the message version of Galatians 5, 19 to 21. It's obvious what, what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper and impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, I would say a rival or a conquest, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community I could go on I think about ugly parodies of community and I think of associations clubs where um, married people get together to swap partners and they consider that community people who get together to indulge their addiction in the same room even though they're each doing it alone whether that's gambling or alcohol or drugs or what have you ugly parodies of community and in the list depending on what translation you're using, there's the word revelings, envyings, murders drunkenness, revelings and such like and going to this resource Sparkling Gems here's what he says about that word says it comes from a Greek word that describes a festive procession or merrymaking I'm thinking Mardi Gras I'm thinking club hopping all night. I mean, this is what I'm thinking. And he says, you know, you probably think that means drunkenness, running from one drunken party to the next. But if you look at what the word really means in the original Greek, the word revelings describes a person who can't bear the thought of boredom, someone who is actually afraid of being bored. So he constantly contemplates what he can do next to have fun or to be entertained. I am amazed that I almost can't go anywhere now without finding a television set. At the restaurant, there's a television set. At the gas station, there's a television set. At the doctor's office, there's a television set. And I think, no, no offense to Juan, I'm sure Juan doesn't do this, but other therapists, I think, probably pay other doctors put, to put the Jerry Springer show in those doctor's offices where you can't get away from it, so they'll need therapy. Anyway, yeah, I, I'm thinking it's a marketing thing. And if you've, ever had, yes, if you've ever had to sit through two hours of Jerry Springer, bless him, Lord. Yes. And the word can refer to a person who endlessly eats at parties or who seeks constant laughter and hilarity. And there's nothing wrong with laughter. The problem with this person is that he is consumed with the need for comedy, light moments, fun, pleasure, entertainment, or constant eating. He lives for the next meal, the next restaurant, the next movie, the next vacation, the next video game, the next trip. And one of the things that fascinates me, if you look at these lists, there's a whole sorts of a mix of things of the things we think are like really, really bad stuff and things that are like, eh. Um these frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness are right there next to cutthroat competition and cheap sex. Um, small minded pursuits are next to divided homes. Impotence to love, uncontrolled addictions. He he doesn't really make a list of here's some really bad stuff. And then if you happen to be addicted to T V or this or that, well, you know, eh, you know, it's not admirable, but eh, that's okay. Envying's murders drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Right there next to murders. I find that amazing. Okay. I'm going to go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-4, again from the message. And he's talking about the end times. And if you want to know about the end times, I am the worst person to ask because I haven't really studied it. I don't know much about it. I could see where maybe the end times started in the first century or maybe we are actually in the last 50 years. Maybe we'll go on for another couple thousand years. People have been saying it's the end of the world for thousands of years, you know, and so I'm, like, confused. However, when I read this description, it kind of sounds like today, don't be naive, there are difficult times ahead. As the end approaches, people are going to be self-absorbed, money-hungry, self-promoting. Think of cable TV. Stuck up, profane, contemptuous of parents, crude, coarse, doggy dog, unbending, slanderers, impulsively wild, savage, cynical, treacherous, ruthless, bloated, windbags. Cable TV, addicted to lust and allergic to God. They'll make a show of religion, but behind the scenes they're animals. Stay clear of these people. And that's the message. If you look at. Um, a more traditional translation, you will find the the phrasing is lovers of sensual pleasures, this is the amplified, lovers of sensual pleasures and vain amusements more than and rather than lovers of God. When I see um, addicted to lust and allergic to God, I don't just think vain amusements, but anything where I've got to have my impulses met immediately is just as bad, whether that impulse is sexual or that impulse is eating or that impulse is shopping, I'm still not allowing God to live through me. It's me and my agenda and my needs and my wants. And here's the deal, we don't like discipline, which is what it takes to be that athlete reaching for the goal. I don't know anybody that really likes discipline, at least when they start. And so we avoid it. And like the people in the civilization that ends up being taken over by another civilization, we become unfit, physically, morally, unfit. We become like old fat pigs, just wallowing in the mud and eating whatever garbage someone throws at us. And sometimes when I watch people watching certain things on TV or listening to certain music, I wish I had a pause button. Where I could say, okay, stop for a second. Are you really going to eat whatever garbage somebody throws in your brain? Really? But a pig will. And description of pigs from my friend here in Sparkling Gems. He talks about how they were very well known in Jesus' day. And sometimes Jesus compared people to swine. And you have no idea how big an offense that was to a Jew, to be compared to a pig. I mean, we don't like it too much, but for them... um, That was like the worst thing to be compared to. Pigs are consumers. They take, take, take. They eat and then want more. They never think to ask where the food came from, who paid for it, or what process was required to produce it. They are just mindless, careless consumers. And there are probably parts of the world when when you say American, they think mindless, careless consumers. And I can't totally blame them for that impression. If you've ever been to a pig pen, you know that pigs do nothing but lie on their sides and jump up just in time to eat. They never contribute anything to the farm until they're dead. I never thought of this until I read this. The cow gives milk, the chicken gives eggs, even the sheep, wool. You get nothing from a pig other than baby pigs until they're dead. And then what you get is infested with parasites, and I won't eat it, but we're not going there. Um, Covered in their own mess... Waddling around in their own filth, pigs just wait to be fed again and again. And when it's time to eat, they just fight each other to try to get to the food first. Slopping up the food, slobbering all over themselves, they eat, quote, just like pigs. Driven to have their need for food met, pigs never stop to say thank you to the person who brought it to them. This is exactly like people, and he's talking about church now, this is exactly like people who don't appreciate the holy things that are freely given to them from the depths of another person's life. It's sad to say, but many believers live and act just like pigs because they are careless, mindless consumers of other people's time and energy. They never think about how a person obtained his wisdom, what it cost for him to obtain it, or how many years it took for him to come to hit this present place of growth in God. These people who act like pigs just take, take, and take. And after they've drained that person of all his strength, they don't even take the time to say thank you for what they've consumed. This is one of those things where I try to check on myself now and then to see if the people who are pouring into my lives, whether it's people I know or people, teachers I watch on TV or something, Am I just listening to them, or am I really appreciating what it took for them to be able to say whatever they're saying to me? And unlike this ravenous consumer, mindless consumer pig, if you look at Psalm 131, the psalmist says he's reached another level of growth. He says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. John Ortberg in Love Beyond Reason says weaning means learning to live in stillness with unfulfilled desires. You ever watch nursing baby, as soon as they're hungry, they want to eat, they want to eat now, and there will be no peace until they eat. As they get older, we learn, oh, I have to wait till lunchtime, and it's okay. And I can relate to mom in a different way. She's not just a provider of my needs. The psalmist says, this is a picture of my soul. I have learned to still my heart. There has been a spiritual weaning process so that I am no longer at the mercy of my desires and reflexes and demands. God is becoming more than just the meter of my needs. I am entering into a new era listening. I have stilled my soul. That's John Ortberg. And I think it was a couple of months ago, I was up here talking about prayer as being more than just me giving God my list of demands, needs, questions, complaints, answers. That it should primarily be listening, getting in touch with God's heart, and then praying that out, giving voice to what he wants to say, to his truth, to his healing. It should not be uh, initiated primarily by me. But life is about more than just being still and not treating God like Santa Claus or my personal ATM. Um, Besides growing up as far as the demands I make on God, I also need to grow up in how I respond to his requests. James 1.22 says be doers of the word and not hearers only. And the word hearers only is taken from um, the idea of college where You can go and take a class for credit, and if you're trying to get a degree, that's what you need to do. But most colleges allow you to audit a class, and it was true back in the day of the Greek Greek philosophy schools. You could just sit in on the class, listen to what the professor has to say, and not have to do any of the homework, not have to take any of the tests. You're not going to be graded, but you get no credit either. And what this guy um, in Sparkling Gems explains is that there were people who did this for fun. They would just go from class to class to class. They would even follow these teachers to different towns just to hear what they had to say, no expectation of putting it in practice. Um, He says, in addition to being intellectually stimulating, these lectures could be quite entertaining. So these, quote, hearers only would roam from meeting to meeting because they loved special speakers and the excitement of hearing something they hadn't heard before. But they had no intention of applying anything they heard. They just loved to gather new information that made them look knowledgeable in the eyes of other people. It was their delight to attend meetings in order to be with the crowd, have a good laugh, or simply hear something new. And so when I'm visiting a church somewhere, and maybe it's not as entertaining as I had hoped, I have to ask myself, Am I here to be entertained, or am I here to connect with God? And then I have to ask myself, what am I doing with what I'm hearing? Even if it was very entertaining, am I actually changing anything in my life? The Bible says faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Yes, I need to hear, and I need to have faith, but that faith is a lot more than just an intellectual agreement. Paul also tells us faith without works is dead, that faith is supposed to turn into some action. And so um, the author of Sparkling Gems says that James 1.22 conveys this idea, Don't be like those who attend meetings and listen to sermons for the sole purpose of being with the crowd or gathering information that makes them look smart in other people's eyes. Have you ever known anybody who could quote the Bible backwards and forwards but had no clue what it meant or what life was about? So the idea is to obey the message. Otherwise, we're just deceived. Okay. So that's one, two of the things, lack of desire and lack of the willingness to accept discipline and withhold our own um, pleasures. Hold us as part of why we don't move forward, and we end up being one of those stuck gears that keeps everybody else stuck, too. But here's another problem we might have, and that is having no vision, or it's not God's vision for us. We're blind. We're short-sighted. That's a real problem if you're trying to connect with God and you have no clue what his vision is. And when we're unhappy, Thomas Merton said, it's not that someone else is preventing you from living happily. We hear that a lot. I mean, we all tend to say, well, you know, my husband, my parents, my boss, my blah, blah, blah. It's somebody else's fault. I'm not happy. He says, it's not that someone else is preventing you from living happily. You yourself do not know what you want. Rather than admit this and ask for God's help, you pretend that someone else is keeping you from exercising your liberty. Who is this? It's you yourself. I don't know what I want, or I have a real good picture of what I want, but it's not God's vision for me. Whatever he was thinking when he was making me in my mother's womb, that's not the vision that I have in mind. So I'm sitting over here reaching for this when I'm supposed to be reaching for that, and I'm wondering why I'm so frustrated. And then even if we have division, we try to achieve it in our, by relying on our own strength. And so got a little visual aid. Got a deflated balloon. And really, with this deflated balloon, we don't really know what shape it'll be. We kind of have an idea it'll be roundish. But is it going to be round like a soccer ball, round like a football? Is there actually going to be a little face that pops out with a little nose? We don't know until we start to fill it up, which I will do. And you see that I'm stretching it first. I've noticed God does that. There's a lot of garbage I've been through in my life that I think He was just stretching me because then when I got to the actual place where He wanted me to do something, it was easy for me to stretch. Okay, now we have an idea of its form, right? If I don't let God fill me up and stretch me, I have no idea, and neither do you, what my design is, what my purpose is. Now, if I tie a knot here, traps the air in there. Now, what gave it its shape was my breath, right? And that's what's going to hold it together, if the air starts leaking out, it's going to be a shriveled up little balloon again, right? And I suspect that there's enough of my DNA in there now that some scientists could find it. I don't know if they can make a positive ID, but my DNA is in there. Okay, here's the idea. God is the one that fills us up, and his DNA is in us. And the Bible says that every word in it is God-breathed. That's what it means. Not just that God inspired it, that God gave someone a good idea. Hey, John, write about love. But that he breathed it, that his very essence is in there. And so as we're studying the word or hearing the word, we're getting filled up with God's essence. Now, the trouble is, you know, we can get stretched, we can get filled up, and we can lose it again. We lose that form. We don't get to the end of our lives in our full destiny and form. And so you need to let him fill you up and stretch you in order to know what wonderful stuff can come out of your crappy circumstances. That little boy we saw last week was born into a real mess, and yet God's done something wonderful with his life but only because he and his parents were willing to overcome those obstacles. And here's the big challenge. If I was created to be, say, the size and shape of a basketball, I am not going to be happy being a shriveled-up flat thing. So if you're bored with life, you're unhappy, nothing seems to be improving, maybe it's because you're kind of deflated. And that brings up a challenge. We're not happy being flat, so we try to fill ourselves up. And there's a verse that talks about someone being puffed up with pride. That's another really interesting word. Um, It's in 1 Timothy. And this puffed up comes from the Greek word to fall, which means to be wrapped in smoke. Like when someone can't see clearly because they're wrapped in smoke. And it's where we get the word typhoon, to follow typhoon, which is a very destructive storm. And that's what happens when I'm trying to accomplish things based on my own efforts. It doesn't last. It doesn't lead to me becoming who I was meant to be and having that sense of real achievement. I just keep working and working at filling up my balloon, filling up my balloon, filling up my balloon, and I end up flat, wrinkled, and smelling like an ice tray because I was full of smoke. That's a self-destructive way to live. And here's another one, another thing that could hold us back. Being relationship-challenged, or what I call a lone ranger. We talk about things that keep us from connecting well with God. That's upward. This is something that keeps us from connecting with other people, inward and outward. And it's not smart. Can you guys read that? This is the Lone Ranger, long since retired, makes an unpleasant discovery. He's finally got his hands on an Indian dictionary, and, it's, and he says, Oh, here it is Kimosabi, Apache expression for a horse's rear end. What the? It's not smart to be a Lone Ranger. Instead, in Hebrews, we're told um, that we should consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. That's Hebrews 10.24. And that word consider is from two words in the Greek. One is to look downward, and the other one is to think. Huh? It's like when you're examining something under a microscope. To carefully contemplate a matter, pondering and carefully looking at a particular issue. And we're told we should consider one another. The word picture someone, this is from the book again, who is so concerned about someone else that he has taken the time to really consider that other person. He has observed the person's ups and downs, his highs and lows. He has studied to find out what helps that person feel encouraged and what events tend to pull him down. Because he has determined to really know and understand that other person, He invests a great deal of time and concentration into studying and getting to know that other person. This kind of knowledge doesn't come by accident, but by determined pursuit. And that kind of knowledge doesn't happen from being in the same room for an hour on Sundays. It just doesn't. It's not that careful consideration. So he says, in light of this understanding, we must remember that although the local church is to be a place where we can come to worship and hear the word of God preached, It is also a place where believers should, quote, consider one another, as this verse commands. The writer of Hebrews uses this word to convey a picture of a loving community where people are vitally concerned about each other's welfare. In fact, they are constantly observing and contemplating each other to know how to encourage and provoke each other to love and to good works. Kind of like these people cheering at this polo match. I don't know what I was expecting from a crowd at a polo match, but it wasn't this. I thought they'd be a little more buttoned up. But. So not only do we consider each other, do I learn what makes somebody tick, but the point is to provoke that person into love, unto love and good works. and the Greek word for provoke" means to come alongside, real close and to sharpen something. You've heard that iron sharpens other? Iron? That word provoke is kind of like if I come with a stick and poke you so you'll get a move on. That's really what it's saying. Um, You may have already guessed, this is from the book, that provoking one another can be either a positive or a negative thing. One translation would be to call into combat, which is what I think Sunday mornings are most of the time. We're encouraging one another. It's a battle. Come on. Come on. You can do it. Come on. Throughout the New Testament, the word is usually translated to mean to irritate, incite, anger, inflame, or enrage. And that is some of the reaction we get when we try to provoke each other. And obviously, that's a bad result. But in Hebrews 10.24, the word provoking is telling us that our relationships with other believers should incite us to become better, stronger, and bolder in the Lord. And this is the paraphrase that he suggests and constantly be observing one another, seriously contemplating, studying, and examining each other until you know exactly how to incite and stimulate each other to love and to good works. So we're supposed to be extremely concerned about each other, get to know each other really well, and then provoke each other, even though that's irritating sometimes. And we're supposed to come to church not just to get filled up, not just for me to connect with God and hear a good sermon, But church should also be a place where I'm helping, I'm a gear, and I'm helping other gears get moving. Okay. So one of the reasons we don't do this is another challenge, and that's being compassion challenged, being selfish or self-centered. I'm sure none of you are. But just so you can try to get a picture of that, this is only part of an art installation at a museum in Israel. When you stand in front of it, there are actually 34 mirrors. And all you can see is yourself. And the way the artist positioned them, even if somebody was standing behind me, I would not see them. I would only see myself in these mirrors because of the way they're set up. And the artist was trying to make a point about being self-centered and how that makes us blind to everybody else, and it magnifies our own importance. So all I can see are my problems. All I can see are my issues. And there's people dropping dead right behind me, and I have no clue because I have this self-centered mindset. That would be a problem for outward and inward growth. And when we talk about growing in Christ, the idea is not to be apathetic. Apathetic is when I say, I don't care. Yeah, children are starving. Uh, yeah, Whatever. I think that's a defense mechanism. Instead, we're called to be compassionate. Someone said, the main evidence that we are growing in Christ is not exhilarating prayer experiences, but steadily increasing humble love for other people. So I like great prayer experiences as much as the next person. But as many of those as I might be having, if I'm not having the fruit of compassion for other people that isn't growing in my life, something's missing. The main evidence that we are growing in Christ is increasing humble love for other people. Another thing that gets in our way is fear. I I could talk for a few hours on this. Don't have the time. Probably this isn't something new to you. Fear is the opposite of faith. And so basically, if you're facing a situation where you could grow, but you're afraid to take that next step, your choice is faith or fear. That's my nutshell. I'll talk more about it someday, I promise. Um, Jesus has no taste for lackadaisical people. Lackadaisical, in case somebody's curious for some odd reason, is spelled L-A-C-K-A-D-A-I-S. I-C-A-L. That's people who are lukewarm about their God-given abilities. I mean, he loves the person. He's not real crazy about how they're just sitting on their rear having no fruit. And in Matthew 25, remember the guy that went on a trip and gave his servants some money to invest, and one of them dug a hole and hid it in there because he was afraid of the master? Yeah, um, he was described as as the unprofitable servant, and that word literally means useless. This is from the same book. A literal translation in today's vernacular would be the good-for-nothing servant. It describes a person whose existence in life is absolutely pointless. He's an aimless, purposeless person who contributes nothing to life. This person's value has never been realized because he does nothing but take up space on the face of the planet. But like everyone else, this person had a choice. He could have become something significant if he had used what was entrusted to him and had done what God asked him to do. Instead of sitting on my rear and complaining about the potholes of life, I'm supposed to continue running, continue reaching forward. Kind of like that. And I want to point something out, just in case it's not clear. We're supposed to be like these guys, you know, leaning forward, running the race. Not like that one. If if you've ever watched a certain Steve Martin, Queen Latifah m- movie, you will understand why I am making sure you don't misunderstand that photo. If you haven't, don't worry about it. Go rent bringing down the house. I said we don't like discipline, but we need to, this is, I'm getting into the what you can do to have a forward-moving life. We need to embrace discipline, discomfort, sound coaching. We need to become an athlete instead of a couch potato, a graduate student instead of an elementary student. We need to become an athlete when it comes to our spiritual growth. That's the wording that Paul is using when he's writing to Timothy. He uses the word exercise and Timothy knew what exercise meant. See, back in that day, people didn't just go into some kind of sport competition and then winner, loser, okay, and we'll do it again in a couple of days, and then we'll do it again in a couple of days, and then somebody will be the champion. Many of these competitions, the loser died. They fought to the death. And so if I'm an athlete preparing for that competition, I want to do whatever it takes to make myself the strongest, baddest most likely to survive, athlete out there. That's the word that Paul is using. And these guys were nuts. They, they would pay people to beat them up so that they could get stronger and stronger. Because if I can handle the four of you beating me up, then I know I can handle this fight with my competitor on Friday. Um, whatever hardship they, saw, they had, they saw it as a positive occurrence. They approached hardship as a positive occurrence an opportunity to develop mental resilience, their stamina, their courage, their physique, and their staying power. The more mountains I can run, carrying the heaviest load on my back, the stronger I am, the more likely I am to survive, not just to win, but to survive. And so when Paul tells Timothy, exercise yourself unto godliness, that's the word he's using. He's telling him, don't run from the challenges before you or spend your time hoping to find an easier route for completing a very difficult task. Instead, strip yourself of all mentalities that would hinder your growth. These athletes usually practice naked and compete at naked, they wanted nothing getting in the way. Strip yourself of everything that would hinder your growth. Embrace this difficult time as an opportunity to spiritually exercise and develop yourself in the Lord. The song that played with the Baby Cody video said, When you pray, pray for strength. Not, Lord, take this away from me. Pray for strength to overcome the obstacle. And Paul was telling Timothy the hardships he faced wouldn't hurt him, but rather would assist in developing him and making him stronger. And when he said, exercise yourself unto godliness, that word was like a fanatical devotion to God. So he was saying, don't just do the average that others would do and get an average result. Put your whole heart and soul into developing yourself to the maximum level. Our spiritual development, we're supposed to be that committed to it. It's supposed to be that intense. Okay, so I want to embrace discipline. I'm going to go through the rest real fast because there's not much time. I want to seek out God's vision for my life. Make sure I'm aiming for the right thing. And I want to rely on him to bring it to come to pass, work on him, with his strength. I just grow up and I cooperate with him, basically. I also get out of God's way. I repent and I submit. I become childlike. Daddy says, do this, I do it. And I just trust him for that. If he says it through my pastor, I give the pastor the benefit of the doubt that it's God inspiring them to tell me to grow up in this area. <laughs> I also connect to others in the church. When I had that big accident, really injured my left arm, it was very swollen, and it looked funky. It looked like marbled. It didn't look like the other arm. And about a year and a half later, when I finally got done with all the physical therapy, the guy who'd been doing the massage therapy, we'd become friends. I became friends with everybody after a year and a half. And he told me, you know, that first time you came in, I looked at your arm, and it looked exactly like the arm on a dead body. He said, have you ever seen a dead body? I said, well, I was at my grandma's funeral, but really she had been embalmed or whatever. You know, I mean, I just saw her face, and she had makeup on. and So, no, I really technically have never seen a dead body. He goes, well, they get swollen, and they get that funny coloring, and that's what your arm looked like. The reason was because there wasn't much circulation. As the circulation improved, the tone improved, and the swelling went down. And I see that sometimes in people who are not connected to the rest of the body of Christ. It's like looking at a dead arm, a dead member, because there's no circulation. We've got to have that circulation, even if it's annoying and provoking. It's supposed to be provoking. So we get up off our tush. And as we connect with each other, it's supposed to be with that kind of love. You've heard the term agape love. It basically means no strings attached. I do what I do for you, not because you're going to appreciate it or appreciate me or think I'm great or I'm going to impress somebody else. I do it out of love with no strings attached. That's the kind of love I should have for you. Agape love is a love that has no strings attached. And that's the same love I'm supposed to use to reach out to outsiders, even though that can be uncomfortable and scary. I'm also supposed to become obstinate. And I'm good at being obstinate. Nobody needs to agree. I'm just letting you know. (laughs) When I get something in my head, I can be obstinate about it. I need to be obstinate about my faith, about being faithful. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And then when he's talking to the Thessalonians, he's talking about how proud he is of them. And I'm going to pretty much close with this. I want you to think about how great it would be if somebody um, would say that about us. He says, um, We ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. That's 2 Thessalonians 1.4. That word faith, for your patience and faith, is a force that is forward-directed and aggressive. That's what that word means. It's not something I believe in my head. It's a force that is forward-directed and aggressive. Not passive. Oh, God did great things in the past. I believe in that. That's my faith. Forward-directed. So by now, you should have your puzzle answers if you've been doing that. And I hope this has helped you stretch your faith and understand love, or understand faith and stretch your love. I don't know, you know. But those are the most important words in there. I don't suppose you're interested in the other ones, right? That's no big deal. No. Yeah, but they're not coming home with us, so there you go. Okay, Second Thessalonians 1.4 could be translated... I'll just start reading this and while you check your answers. We are so impressed with what God has done among you that when we tell all of God's churches about you, we proudly tell them about your refusal to bend to pressure, your resolve to never abandon or give up what belongs to you, your faith, your commitment to hang in there no matter how heavy the load, your determination to stay put until your hopes are realized. We've also told them how your faith has remained aggressive and forward-directed regardless of the ordeals you've been through, such as those times when you've been hunted down like animals, relentlessly pursued. Your faith has stayed out front despite the horribly tight, life-threatening, terrifically stressful situations you have undergone but steadfastly resisted. I think we expect life to be easy, particularly when we become Christians. And I have heard Christians, Christians who've fallen away say that. Well, things are supposed to become easier, and God didn't take away my addiction to whatever. Why does it say that? We're supposed to overcome. So they never drew back or retreated just because there was a hardship. Instead, their faith was like an arrow that had been shot and could not be retracted. This is still from the book, Sparkling Gems. Their faith was like an arrow that had been shot and could not be retracted, constantly reaching forward to grab hold of God's promises. Paul recognized this was real faith and was proud of the Thessalonians' believers for never backing up on the promises of God. And while that's a good thing for us to do for our own growth, don't forget that there are all sorts of other people depending on that people that you may not have met yet. And so, for example, there are people that I've prayed for and that's helped them in some way in their lives. Well, guess what? Fifteen years ago, God showed me I needed to learn how to pray. So I went to the lady who was the pastor over our prayer ministries, and I said, I need to learn how to pray. Can I join the prayer group? She said, we're not taking any new members at this time. You're going to have to wait a little while. I said, okay. A month later, I went back and asked again, a month later, I went back and asked again. A month later, I went back and asked again. I did this for a year before she said, okay, it's time now. Now you can come in and join the prayer group and, and so forth. What you need to know about me is that I've faced so much rejection in my life that it was not easy for me to set myself up again. Hi, here I am. Turn me away. Uh, yeah, that's what I thought. Okay, hi, here I am. You know, But God had told me, so I did it. Not knowing that my life might depend on it, all the other things that might depend on me learning how to do this. I didn't know that at the time. He doesn't show us the whole plan. That's why it's so important now. And if somebody says, you need to grow in this area, I try to listen and say, okay, God, is this you? Show me what I need to do or what I need to give up because I don't know who's depending on it. We're going to close with a video I'd like for you to connect with whatever God's doing with you and um, your place in this world. And then turn and talk to someone about that. And let's minister to each other.